Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 16. Last week, we talked about the plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh's refusal to let Israel go. But I left one out, the last one on the death of the firstborn. That's the topic for this morning's sermon. We're going to be covering chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 13, verse 16. Let's start by reading chapter 11, verses 1 to 8. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from there. When he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that the men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be again. And among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Let's pray. Lord, as you well know, there are some controversial parts to this sermon this morning. I pray that you would give your people discernment, and you would speak through your word this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 10 ended in verses 28 and 29 with Pharaoh telling Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. What happens next is recorded in chapter 11 at the very end of verse 8, which says, that Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Everything else in chapter 11 is kind of like a flashback in a movie or book telling what God had previously told Moses. In other words, God had previously told Moses there would be one more plague after which Pharaoh would let Israel go. God had previously told Moses that this plague would involve the death of the firstborn. After that, the Egyptians would finally let Israel leave. Chapter 11 serves as an introduction to the rest of our passage this morning. Now, just a couple of explanations before we move on to chapter 12. First, chapter 11, verse 2 says in the King James Version, Speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. That translation is somewhat misleading, since they were not borrowing anything, 
and had no intention of returning anything. The NIV translates the Hebrew correctly when it says they were to ask their neighbors. Second, when verse 7 says, but among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any person or animal, that's apparently a figure of speech, kind of like saying not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. In other words, while there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt at the death of their firstborn, in Goshen all will be quiet. As long as the Passover lamb blood was applied to the doorsteps or doorposts, no firstborn in Goshen will die. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 28, give the regulations for the Passover observance. Our passage for this morning is very repetitious, which was on purpose for emphasis. But it's too long to read in such a short sermon. So I'm going to summarize much of it for you and hope that you'll go back and read it later. Every Jewish family was to select one lamb or goat for each household. The lamb or goat must be a year-old male without defect. The animal must be sacrificed at twilight. And then, according to verses 7 and 22, they were to dip a branch of hyssop in the blood and smear it over the door and on the doorposts. The hyssop plant has a sponge-like branches that absorb liquid. That very night, God would strike down every firstborn in Egypt. But when he saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over that house, and the plague would not touch them. That same night, the lamb or goat must then be roasted over fire whole, head, legs, and all. Kind of like a pig roast, although Jews would be horrified at the thought of a pig roast. The whole animal must be consumed that night. So if you couldn't eat a whole lamb, you were to share it with your neighbor. If there was any left over, it must be burned up. Both men and women back then would wear long robes. If they needed to run, they would have to tuck their robe up under their belt. So in preparation for eating the Passover meal, they were to tuck their robe up under their belt and eat the meal with their sandals on. The meal must be eaten quickly. They were to eat the meal along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. All of this was symbolism. According to verse 39, the dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. This was to be a reminder to future generations that they had to flee Egypt quickly and didn't have time for yeast to rise. The bitter herbs were to remind them of their bitter and harsh labor, as it said in Exodus 1.14. Wearing their sandals tucked up, up under the robe and eating in haste was also to remind the future generations that they had to leave in haste that very night. Later on, this Passover meal was to be part of a seven-day festival called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. No work was to be done during those seven days, except for preparation of food. And Jews were to eat nothing containing yeast for the entire seven days. In fact, anyone who deliberately violated this command was to be cut off from Israel. In other words, they were no longer to be considered part of the Jewish community and were cut off from the covenant and probably from future life with God as well. Generally speaking, only Jews were allowed to celebrate this Passover meal. Verse 44 says, no foreigner may eat it. But verse 48 clarifies that any foreigners who live with the Jews can eat the Passover if their males are circumcised. In other words, if they accept Yahweh as their God, 
and accept circumcision as the sign of his covenant. This Passover feast was to be celebrated every year for generations to come. In fact, chapter 12, verses 25 to 27 say, When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrificed to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. After giving instructions for the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verses 29 to 42 then talk about the event of the Passover and the beginning of the exodus from Egypt. Let's read verses 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Many have questioned God's justice or fairness in killing all the firstborn. I'll come back to this issue, this thorny issue later. In the meantime, the death of Pharaoh's firstborn, including the death of, of Pharaoh's firstborn, was finally the last straw for Pharaoh. Verses 31 and 32 say that Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and told them to take their people and their flocks and herds and leave Egypt. Pharaoh wasn't the only one who wanted them to leave. Verse 33 says, The Egyptians urged urge the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. One puzzling part is in verse 35 and 36, which say, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. It is a bit puzzling why the Egyptians would be favorably disposed toward Israel and give them what they asked for. One suggestion is that people in that culture generally respected power, even if it was from a leader they didn't like, and Moses demonstrated God's power. Another suggestion is that the Egyptians were so eager to see Israel leave, they were willing to give them anything just to get rid of them. Whatever it was, the bottom line is in verse 36, which says, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. So verse 37 says that the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. Sukkoth was in the Nile Delta, southeast of Ramses, where many of the Israelites had lived. Critics point out, however, that the city of Ramses was named after a pharaoh who didn't live until over 200 years after 1440, 1450 B.C., when the exodus occurred. When archaeologists dug down under the ancient city of Ramses, they discovered a town named Avaris. Avaris had a Semitic-speaking population, and Israel is Semitic. Avaris had a palace, and the palace was not Egyptian architecture. The style was more like the buildings where Abraham was from. On palace grounds, there were 12 main graves, reminding us of the 12 sons of Jacob. One of those graves was a relatively small pyramid tomb with a large statue inside. 
The statue was of, was of a man who does not appear to be Egyptian and who had been painted with a multicolored robe. Nothing like that has ever been discovered in all of Egypt. There is archaeological evidence of prosperity in Avaris, followed by a time of oppression. Then there's evidence that all of the people of Avaris suddenly packed up everything and left. Some scholars believe that the pyramid in Avaris was the tomb of Joseph. They believe that Avaris was the town in which most Egyptian slaves had lived and from which the exodus occurred. So why would the book of Exodus call this town Ramses after the name of a pharaoh who didn't live until long after the exodus? The answer is that it would be kind of like someone today writing a story about the founding of Boston. The author calls the town Boston because that's what his readers know the town by, even though Boston was originally called Tremortane, or Tremontane, I guess it is. Similarly, the readers or the future readers of Exodus may know where the city of Ramses is, but the name of Varus may mean nothing to them. Anyway, verse 37 says, there were about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. When you include families, that could have been as much as 2 million people. Critics have argued that archaeology simply does not support the idea that 2 million people wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. They would have left some archaeological evidence, and there is none. Even more troubling is the fact that Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 7, both indicate that when Israel takes the land of Canaan, they will be taking over seven nations that are each larger than they are. In other words, each of those tribes would have had to have more than 2 million people. That would be 14, at least 14 million people total. And the population of Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza today doesn't even add up to 14 million people. So the critics have claimed that the Bible is just wrong. Some evangelical scholars point out, however, that the Hebrew word for thousand sometimes refers to clans of fighting men. Today, we might call them squads or platoons. In other words, the Hebrew text may be saying that 600 clans or squads of fighting men left Egypt beside women and children. Each of these squads might contain no more than 12 or 15 men, and that would be a total of roughly seven to 9,000 men. If many of these men had families, the total could have been maybe between 30 and 40,000 people who left Egypt, but probably not 2 million. This is not saying the Bible is wrong. It's saying that the word for thousand in our English Bibles could be translated differently, and that would refute the critics who claim the Bible is wrong. Verses 40 and 41 say, Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. The divisions may refer to the squads I just mentioned. Some critics have tried to attack the Bible as being in error because Acts 7.6 says there were, uh, they were in Egypt for 400 years, not 430 years. But verse 41 is very specific whereas Acts 7.6 is just giving a round number. Giving a round number is not an error. 
Some critics will grasp at any straws trying to discredit the Bible. Anyway, so Israel sets out from Avaris, or Ramses, on their way out of Egypt. Next week, we'll talk about the crossing of what Hebrew Bible calls the Sea of Reeds, which the critics say was not much more than a shallow swamp. So did the Bible get this wrong? We'll find out next week. Let me close with just three observations. First, this passage raises the question about God's justice or fairness in killing all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Today, we have a constitutional right to life. For human beings to take innocent human life is not only unconstitutional, it is evil. But no one has a God-given right to life. Life is a gift from God. Our life belongs to God. He gives it. He can take it away at any time. Every breath we take is on loan from God. When we say God is unfair to take someone's life, it's like telling someone who loaned you their car they are unfair when they take it back. Not only that, but people, especially non-Christians, tend to look at life as if this is all there is. God knows better, and we should too. Death is not the end. Even if our life lasts for a hundred years, that's not a single grain of sand among all the seashores in the world when compared to eternity. When we die, it simply means that our very temporary sojourn on this planet is over. It doesn't mean that life is over. Your friends, family, children, and grandchildren, and your own life are a gift on loan from God. Treasure them every day. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for anyone. God does not owe anyone anything, and it is not unfair or unjust when God takes back what he has graciously loaned to us. Second, the New Testament views Jesus as our Passover lamb. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John may be thinking of Jesus as the Passover lamb who dies to protect others from God's judgment due to sin. John 19.36 is referring to Jesus' crucifixion when it says, These things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That is a reference to Exodus 12.46 in which the Passover lamb's bones were not broken. We saw in our passage this morning that the Passover meal was not to have any yeast in it. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul uses the yeast as an illustration of sin. Addressing sin in the Corinthian church, Paul writes, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus was the true Passover lamb. The blood over the door and on the doorpost symbolizes the blood of Jesus applied to us through faith or belief in him, protecting us from eternal death. Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you have that faith this morning? The Gospel of John says that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This is not the kind of belief where you believe, for example, that George Washington was our first president. To use a kind of a negative example, we might talk about a radical environmentalist and say, 
Yeah, she's a true believer. What we mean is that she doesn't just believe the environment is important. She is genuinely committed and devoted to the cause. It affects how she lives her life and what she says and what she does or doesn't do. She's a true believer. Those who believe in Jesus are not committed to a cause. We are committed to a person. A person who is our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. Are you truly devoted and committed to Jesus? Are you a true believer? And finally, Passover was a huge deal to the Jews. It was to be celebrated annually and was kind of a, it was a time when parents were to remind their kids of the powerful works of God in releasing Israel from bondage. Moses gave instructions about when future generations observed the Passover. Chapter 13, verse 8 says, On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. The me in this verse is referring to future generations of Israelites who by that time have entered the promised land. By that time, everyone who observed the first Passover meal will have died, except Joshua and Caleb. And yet the Israelites were to remember that Passover as if it was about what the Lord did for me and how I came out of Egypt in the Passover. Dennis Prager, an Orthodox Jew, writes, Every Jew throughout the generations was to identify with the Exodus as if he or she actually experienced it. Dennis goes on to say, as it is written in the Passover Seder service, in every generation a person is obligated to see himself as if he himself has come out of Egypt. Now you all know that Jesus' last supper was a Passover meal. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that's not just remembering that 2,000 years ago Jesus died on a cross. It is the kind of remembrance which recognizes that when Jesus was nailed to that cross, he was nailed there for me or you personally. The communion service, which was originally a Passover meal, is the kind of remembrance which envisions ourselves as, which we, as if we were actually at the foot of that cross and God was acting on our behalf. As it happens, this is Communion Sunday. If you are a true believer in Jesus, we invite you to take communion this morning. As the men come, let's prepare our hearts for communion.